0: Conrad Black. In full, Conrad Moffat Black, Lord Black of Cross Harbor, was born in 1944 in Montreal. He is a businessman who built the third largest newspaper group in the world during the 80s and 90s. At its height, it controlled nearly 250 newspapers, including the London Daily Telegraph, the Fairfax Group in Australia, the Jerusalem Post, Southern Press in Canada and the Chicago Sun-Times. He studied history and political science at Carleton University in Ottawa, earned a law degree from Laval University in 1970, and a master's degree in history at McGill University in 1973 for his thesis. He wrote a biography of former Quebec Premier Maurice Duplessis, which was published in 1977. It came to be considered a definitive work he entered the newspaper business in 1967 as a part owner of two small Quebec weeklies on the way to establishing his media empire. He stepped down as CEO of Hollinger in the early 2000s following the discovery that its executives had been paid more than $32 million in non-compete fees without board approval. Black was at the center of the controversy, having received at least $7 million. He was also criticized for charging an estimated $9 million in research costs for his biography of Franklin Delano Roosevelt to Hollinger. In 2005, U.S. federal prosecutors charged him with several counts of fraud, racketeering, and obstruction of justice. Despite a vigorous defense, he was found guilty of mail fraud and obstruction of justice in 2007. He did his time returning to Canada in 2012, where he currently lives in the 23,000-square-foot mansion that his father built in Toronto. Welcome to the Bibliophile
1: um i have a couple of comments in that introduction the nine million dollars was an acquisition of roosevelt papers and the complaint was dropped because it was in fact a perfectly respectable acquisition uh value for money there was absolutely nothing wrong with it uh and it was approved by the independent directors and it had very little to do with research in my book secondly um you omit a number of points the Opposition started with 17 counts. Four were abandoned. Nine were acquittals. Four were unanimously, with one recusal, the former Solicitor General, unanimously vacated by the Supreme Court of the United States and remanded down to the Circuit Court of Appeal in Chicago with a admonition against the infirmity of invented law. I quote the late Madam Justice Ginsburg who wrote the decision for the court and the circuit court was commanded to assess the gravity of its errors. Two counts were spuriously retrieved and uh, and one, however, was vitiated by the fact that the trial judge determined that it was a clerical error by a co-defendant. The charge was the improper receipt of $285,000 by my office in Toronto when I was in England, a a payment that was approved by the independent directors and twice published in the public filings of the company. And the other was an obstruction charge, which the originating jurisdiction said was not even a civil offence. And when um, friends of mine appealed on my behalf for a pardon Uh, The matter was naturally referred to the White House legal office and the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, after extensive research into the case and discussion with the lawyer chiefly acting for me in that matter, Alan Dershowitz, recommended that the president grant a full pardon to all the defendants and issue a statement that no charges should have been laid. The whole thing was absolute. Piffle from A to Z. It was a disgrace and an outrage. Uh, I don't live in that house that you mentioned at the moment, although I have an option to buy it back. But, uh, you know, I'm older now and I don't have a family, and it was a place for a family. My father had the property, but the house was rebuilt by me. He did not have a 23,000 square foot house. He had about a 10,000 square foot house. I rebuilt the house and expanded it.
0: You added the 13,000 square feet?
1: Yeah, I added quite a lot to it. Yeah, I had an indoor swimming pool and a gym and libraries and a lot of things. Uh, it was a nice house. I'm not denigrating my father's house, but it had changed quite a bit. Well, anyway, that's my I,
0: first question. Was there a library in the house that he built? And if so, did he design the library?
1: No, the, the li- there was a library, but it was a small room. And it
0: was adapted to be a library, but it only held about,
1: I don't know, six or 700 books at the most, you know, and I, between my wife and myself, we have over 25,000 books, so it's a considerable matter to get them all in.
0: Okay, next question. Was Was he a collector?
1: Not a collector, but an avid reader and a highly educated man. He, he read widely, uh, both in fiction and nonfiction, and uh, certainly helped propel me on the way to be a reader by giving me books as a young person, my brother and myself, that he correctly calculated would whet our interest in historical and other subjects.
0: What do you collect?
1: Uh, most, not all, but most of my best books are Napoleonic-era first editions, English and French, and uh, and they're in London, but that's a very fine collection, I do say so. I bought it en bloc about... 30 years ago, and, and it, it's a very nice, very nice group of books, about a thousand books, all full leather bound first editions, 200 years old. I also collected uh, books and documents as part of my Roosevelt research, and I have behind me a number of books of his, including the only book in the world, to the best of my knowledge, that is signed by both President Roosevelt and Mr. Churchill. And I have a very nice book right behind me here, signed over by President Roosevelt as a Christmas gift to the then Governor General of Canada, Lord Tweedsmuir. So those would be my two main areas. But I bought a couple of small collections. I bought the library of uh, Sir Jack Plum, the biographer of Sir Robert Walpole, and uh, so I have some books of his and um, and also. Uh, Basil Liddell Hart, the military historian. I, I bought the uh, library uh, that he had. And the last one, a small group of books, an interesting one, uh, from the estate, actually, of the niece of Sir Neville Henderson, who was the last British ambassador to Germany before World War II. And there are a lot of books there signed by the Nazi leaders and photographs of the Nazi leaders and so forth. I mean, it, it was a shabby endeavor the british government made to appease the reich uh, regime but but interesting historical books all the same
0: that doesn't sound like any fun at all buying a a collection en masse the fun of collecting is is going and hunting do you do any yeah
1: well I, i do that too but you asked me to single out things i've got a great many individual books that i have bought individually for different reasons that i'm happy to have but uh you know, okay. I, 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 you have to start an answer to such an extensive question somewhere.
0: Okay, I'll try and narrow things down here a little bit. Then. No, 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 you know, whatever you want. Okay, why do you collect? You
1: you you see behind me a picture of, of uh, Mr. Nixon and myself at a dinner that I held for him here in Toronto in um, 1992. And uh, on that occasion, I had him sign up all of his books. I had a copy of each of them. I had him sign them all, so. I have those around. They're very nice inscriptions.
0: You've written a biography of Nixon.
1: I have, yes.
0: So when you were researching your thesis on Duplessis, did you go out and start acquiring books about him or not? There
1: weren't so many to buy. What I did do was I was given access to his papers, which were owned by a a charitable corporation incorporated in French, but the, it was called the um, Company of Friends of the Honorable Maurice L. Duplessis, Inc., and they owned his papers. And yep. they, they would not allow anyone into them, but they did engage a, a well-known figure in Quebec at the time, Robert Rumilly, to write a, an approved biography of Mr. Duplessis in French, and I knew him. Uh, and I said, "Well, if you're not going to do it in English, uh, would you have any objection if I did?" And he said, "No, I certainly wouldn't, and I'll be happy to support you." Opposite uh, this, you know, this group that has his papers, but well, you can't write a serious book about a statesman unless you can lay hands on most of his papers. You know, otherwise, you just you might as well just read the newspapers. And it turned out that the head of this outfit was someone I knew, the former Minister of Cultural Affairs of Quebec, Jean Noel Tremblay. Who is still alive, elderly man now? So I, I did lay hands on these papers and I microfilmed them. That's what you did in those days. We're talking about early nineteen seventies, fifty years ago. So I have all of that, but you know, I had obviously I had to give all the papers back, and I did. But I've got microfilms of them all, and they and I de- I deposited them at McGill University and uh, the University of Windsor, Ontario. But I kept a set for myself. I have a sketch of Duplessis that his caucus gave him. On his thirtieth anniversary as a member of what is now the National Assembly, member for Three Rivers, nine terms uninterrupted, and uh, it's, it's quite a nice sketch. So I have that. It's upstairs in the sense.
0: So when did you start
1: on this? Excuse me. I, I I I apologize for interrupting. But now that I think, but I have I have his cigar box. There was also a gift to him by Stockton. It's just it's in this room. It's just just. Behind the screen in which you were appearing. Anyway, I'm sorry, I interrupted you.
0: Well, I was trying to get at when you started to uh, realize that actually owning the book was better than just reading it from the library. I'll, I'll just interject here with a little story by the former Librarian of Congress, William Matheson. He was reading Ayn Rand's Fountainhead, I think it was, from the library. And he was going through it. And apparently there's some juicy bits in it. And when he got there, he found that the pages had been torn out and that propelled him to start acquiring his own book. So I'm looking for, I'm looking for that, <laughs> that moment in your life. Uh,
1: it's, I guess it was when I moved to London and started visiting the bookstores there it's the best city in the world for bookstores yeah. and um and then I, I was astounded at what was available and, and how cheap some of these things were given how interesting i took them to be and then it just grew from there and i have a number of interests and uh and, and I, so i bought in a number of different areas i mean one of the interesting things about this room and i could adjust the screen so you could see one of them if you wanted to is i've got i've got a series of ship models around the tops of these bookcases, 15 ship models, and they're, they're to the scale of one to 200. Uh, and they're the greatest liners, passenger liners in history. So the very large ones like the, the Normandy and the Queens, for example, are, are over five feet long.
0: Do you have the menus from those uh, ships or not?
1: I, I have some, but, but uh, here, just let me see. Uh, would you mind if I just turned this Well, I'm happy just... to
0: look at them, but we're just doing audio just for your time. Okay.
1: Well, anyway, the, the, I bought a lot of books about these famous liners. Yes. They were kind of rare books, you know? I mean, not, not necessarily particularly sought after. They just weren't in, in ready supply. So yeah, I mean, like anything else you buy in fields that you're interested in. So I have a, uh, excellent collection on French-Canadian history. I have an excellent collection on Napoleonic history. A huge number of books on people I've actually written about. I mean, written books about. My yeah. Roosevelt books are very numerous. I have special sections for Roosevelt and Nixon because there's so many of them, you know. I'm one of these people who has eclectic interests I've, all my life i've been interested in the battleships of world war II. and upstairs in this house i've models smaller than than the ones in this room of ocean lines but i've, I've models of one uh, member of every class of battleship or battle cruiser of every country that was involved in world war II. and i have uh, at least a thousand books essentially about naval strategy and particularly the battleship era which was roughly speaking the, the world wars uh, so you know you, you I, I have the means to buy books and uh, the place to put them so i i'm afraid i'm rather undisciplined in my expansion of the number of books i have according to what i'm interested in and what i can see and uh, you know once you get into this as you know nigel you get uh, advisories from every bookstore in the western world telling you that you've got a you know, put in your buy order once because this thing will go like a hot cake, you know, and, and uh, you know, up to a point, I'm a sucker for that. But the more you get into it, you realize that in, in book selling, as in other fields, the art of salesmanship sometimes exceeds the quality of the product being offered. So you've got to take a good look on your way in.
0: Well, that brings up the, uh, the topic <laughs> of connoisseurship, doesn't it? In the sense that, you know, you're being offered all these books, you have to judge what's good, what's not so good. And what's a reasonable
1: price. Yeah, yeah but it's like and anything what else. Do you I know, the, the, more, the more you do it,
0: the better you get at it, you know?
1: There's no substitute for experience right. in any field.
0: You are a man of, of means. So I wonder if you're ever able to experience the rush of having spent too much on a book.
1: Um, the rush. Yeah. I, I, well, fire. I okay, okay, It hasn't happened recently, but there were times in the past when I thought that perhaps my comparative inexperience was exploited by the bookseller, but, uh, that is all in the area of caveat emptor and you learn the lesson and don't, re- and don't repeat the mistake. So yeah. there was a bit of that, but uh, it, my problem wasn't that it's strained by means so much as a, a kind of tweaked my ego because in, normally in commercial matters i'm reasonably astute
0: so you you figure you got sucked in then well a little bit you know but
1: you know as i say caveat emptor i should have been more careful and the extent to which i was uh, induced to overpay was not one that was unaffordable so you've you learned just- the lesson and drive on
0: this is William Matheson again. He says, in the last analysis, what book collecting is all about is knowledge, connoisseurship, and a conscious rationale for shaping a collection.
1: Yeah, that's what I am going to have to do when I when I have a little more leisure time. I, 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 although, in fairness to myself, I've shaped it up fairly well. I've, I've got, uh, I would say, I've got good sections on the history of five or six countries or jurisdictions, and a couple of the specialties that I mentioned earlier, and they are shaped up fairly well for the most part. But I, I can I can do I can do a bit more, and I will I will. That's one of the things I've always thought that I would do when I retired. You know, I agree with Mr. King when Field Marshal Montgomery called upon him shortly after he retired, Mackenzie King. And, and, and they were both at this point assembling their papers and King made the point that, well, we can't plan these things. Everybody after their careers should have a few years with their papers and their books, just shaping everything up, especially if they're going to write a memoir. And I mean, he died before he, before he got around to writing it. But mind you, he left an extremely voluminous diary. Which which uh, is among the most interesting reading in, in Canadian history. I, I've found. I, by the way I've got some excellent uh, Canadian history books too. But you're right, you're right. Uh, and and what Mister Matheson said is right. You want to shape your collection, and I I've got a lot to work with, and I and I will enjoy shaping it. Now I've done a lot of that already.
0: How are you going to shape it? What are you going to do? You're going to Kick stuff out that you don't think. What i am, I'm,
1: I'm, I've got to say, I'm not good at kicking things out. I'm pretty good at putting yeah. secondary things and shelves and rooms that I don't go into very often. But um, it, it, you accentuate the strengths, and where there are gaps, you fill the gaps. So you buy a bit more and, and just try and leave relatively complete, if you'll don't mind the metaphors of like silos, sort of fill the silo of each subject you're interested in. If my sons or my daughter have any interest in my books, they're welcome to the mother. If they don't, then we'll find a place to send them when when I'm not here anymore, but I expect to be around for a while yet, so I don't have to worry about that kind of thing at this point.
0: What specifically do you mean by a place you're going to send them? I
1: mean, if my family don't want them, uh, the better pieces, the better sections of the books I have, and I think my wife would say the same. Uh, I, I think we should give to a library or, you know, some place that would appreciate them and where uh, some of them would be of authentic interest to scholars. And, and uh, you know, I, I've seen a lot of private collections that just withered on the vine. And like the ones I mentioned earlier that I bought when, when, when the executives sent them off to bookstores to liquidate them. I mean, a lot of this stuff, that would be fine, but some of the nice things I had, the good things and the integral collections I, I think would be better put in one place and then and, and made accessible to people who would have an interest in them by the way I have I have some valuable books uh, apart from some of these Roosevelt ones I have Roosevelt's flag I mean the flag that hung behind his desk uh, yeah. you know with a silk flag with a gold braid trim you know I have that with an attestation from General Marshall's quartermaster but the most valuable book I have has a lock of napoleon's hair in it and and, uh, and a container and it's a special album on napoleon and, and uh it, it's a really a remarkable book it's in england
0: what does that flag do for you well it's
1: history isn't it
0: but what does it do for you
1: well i mean nigel you know it doesn't do anything for me in the sense you asked the question i don't I don't find that my heart beats faster when I look at it, but it is a bit of history, and, and it's, it's, a, it's just a nice thing to have on your wall.
0: That's not and a good thing. There
1: are all manner of photographs of President Roosevelt at his desk, and this is the flag behind him. In my own biography of Roosevelt, I have a, a one picture of him sitting of the day he signed his war message with the leaders of the Congress standing behind him, and the flag is in that picture.
0: Does it make you happy? Does it make you feel like bragging about it? Does it? No, the, of course not. What, what, Nothing. What?
1: I, I do not brag about anything, certainly not my possessions. It doesn't do that. I just feel it is. It, it was the property of a man uh, who I greatly admired. Although I, I was only a baby when he died, and uh, a, a tremendously important historical figure, and and I am a historian, and it's just a nice historical artifact to have in your house. No, I, it, I, it, what it does is uh, just strikes me as a very nice thing to have in your wall, not more than that.
0: Does it make you feel like you're sort of closer to him or not?
1: No, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I wouldn't say that. No. What I do find makes you feel closer to people and as, as you probably know, if you're a biographer of somebody, if you do it seriously, eventually you you do highly identify with this person. Uh, I, and the best description I ever saw of that was George C. Scott d- describing different contexts, playing General Patton in that famous movie that he, after a while, he felt, not that he was Patton, but he kind of really identified with Patton. And uh, so what it does do is that, uh, it reinforces the degree to which you identify with a person who, in this case, was someone I wrote a very extensive biography of. I mean, it was a book of 1,100 pages, which, you know, he was a four-term president in an extremely eventful time, so there was plenty to fill the pages. It wasn't a, a loosely written book. I mean, yeah, most father, biographies of Roosevelt are more than one volume.
0: My father admired that biography of yours.
1: Oh, thank you. It was, I must say, very well reviewed.
0: Yeah. One of the things that a friend of mine who I interviewed uh, not that long ago, Mark Samuels Lasner, commented on book collecting is the thrill of checking the mailbox every day. Do you uh, get that?
1: <laughs> I'm afraid not. I don't receive many books by mail. Okay. And uh, I've got so many now, I'm not as active a buyer as I used to be. I do find that I'm often offered things I already have, you know. But uh, I, I, yeah, I will say that from time to time I'm expecting a book and I'm cl- certainly glad when it when it arrives. So, yeah, to some degree I do, yeah.
0: So what have you learned from your collections? I mean, aside from maybe just uh, more knowledge about Napoleon, uh, is there anything else that you've learned from any of your particular collections well yeah
1: great great many things you know i mean um at the moment i'm writing um about ancient history and i and i'm using my own books to inform myself yeah and i've learned a very great deal it's an extensive subject of course and and we we tend if we don't really get into it to think of it as a relatively condensed period but but it wasn't you know i mean uh you have a pretty full history of the Western world, such as it was at the time, mainly the Middle East and some of the Mediterranean shore, in the thousand years before Christ, from 1000 BC to the thousand years in that period, and and, and it was an extremely uh, eventful time. Uh, but most of what we have that is in general circulation are just little aphorisms with people's names, like "Rich as Croesus" or "Pyrrhic Victory" or. Slicing the guardian knot as Alexander the Great did, or something. And so there's a really a, a rich, interesting history there that that is generally underappreciated, I think. And I've I've used my own books almost entirely as my sources, and they've served very well.
0: So it's research, and the fact that it's right there, so you don't have to go right anywhere. there. Like and there. I write
1: late at night. I think all writers write either late at night or early in the morning. But in any case, when the world isn't on their phone or at their door all the time, and, and they can focus on it. And so I, in my case, I just reach behind me or walk around the room near a bit and get the book I'm looking for. The, these sources just aren't that accessible. So if you've got yep. them around the desk you're working at, uh, it's a great convenience.
0: I'm back. You're black, and you're back. Yeah. If you've heard that before. Uh, sorry about that. Yeah, the damn internet. So anyway, but we're good. Uh, uh, when
1: you when you put it like that, Tom Wolfe wrote a jacket blurb for my book, A Matter of Principle. Okay. And his statement was, "Blacks back. It's
0: payback time, Jack." his uh, bonfire of the vanities there's a scene in that I was down in the Dominican Republic by a swimming pool this guy who's really proud of his physique and his powerful neck and he overhears this woman saying what an asshole he is with his neck anyway the whole swimming pool looked at me because I laughed I and mean, you don't get that too often in a book. No, you mean where you laugh in a way that people around you take note of it. Exactly, yeah, it's, it's this is laugh out loud. And uh, I'll never forget that. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Did you ever meet him?
1: Oh yeah, sure. Otherwise I wouldn't have been in any position to ask him to write a recommendation of, of the book. And I, you know, I knew him, he was a delightful man.
0: Okay, so you also collect Lincoln. Am I correct in that assumption? I, I
1: I don't have a lot of him really. I must say no, no.
0: no. I, I, I mean, I've
1: got a lot of books
0: about him, but they're 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 not especially noteworthy books. Okay, well, here's uh here's what uh, Matheson says about Alfred Whittle Stern who who collected Lincoln. He said, in assembling his collection, Mr. Stern looked for everything that shed light on Lincoln, the Civil War and Lincoln's time. To this end, he sought not only printed books, pamphlets, broadsides, and ephemera, but also photographs, prints, postage stamps, campaign bandanas, memorabilia, a life mask of Lincoln, a cast of Lincoln's hand, and so forth. He bought biographies of Lincoln right up to the most current, reminiscences of his generals, newspaper accounts of the assassination, and anything else that would extend the usefulness of the collection to a Lincoln scholar. I just wonder, is that how you collect? Do you go after the zeitgeist of the time?
1: No, I'm not as uh, broad brush as that. I, I focus on... Uh, I, they're, they're different things. It, it, where I accumulated a great many books about Roosevelt and Nixon was because I was writing about them. And, and, and so I, I bought books that I thought would contribute to my insight, my ability to write a more comprehensive book about each of them. Uh, but I didn't go beyond that. Uh, and then the other thing where I buy randomly in fields where I have a certain interest, it's quite unscientific and not a perfectionist thing. I'm not trying to get everything about Absolutely every single thing about World War II battleships, but but things that that I see that that I'm interested in. Now I haven't bought in that field for many years. I think I've pretty well topped out in that field. I mean, if, uh, if you you know, I've got the plans for every battleship in World War Two. You know, I I, I I just don't need anymore. But but no, I, I one thing about this kind of collecting is it is very subjective and and subject to whim just depends on what you come across and and it's just funny what you end up with but i can identify with what you said there i have again there i I have a a copy of the death mask of napoleon here but i have a a copy of the death mask of stalin in england including his hands he had rather small hands and i and they formerly belonged to enoch powell if you remember him there was a sale of enoch's effects, I put in a bid for them just, you know, for fun, really. And then yeah. nobody else obviously had any interest in a death mask of Stalin. So I bought it, I don't know, right. hundred pounds or something. It didn't cost me. <laughs> right. And it doesn't mean that I'm an admirer of Stalin's. I just thought it was an odd thing to have Enoch Powell's death mask of Stalin. I mean, I have behind me a, a group of the books of... Charles de Gaulle signed over to Walter Lippmann, And I bought them in the United States for only $250 because nobody in the United States cares anything about Charles de Gaulle and nobody in that country nowadays cares anything about Walter Lippmann either. And yet to me, it was a, you know one of the great statesmen of the 20th century signing his books over to a, a, the most famous journalist, or at least commentator uh, yeah. in, in, in the English speaking world probably for decades.
0: You're not in this to get a good price and sell it for more. That's obviously not the motivation. It's just that it's a fascinating what.
1: Look, it's one of these things that you particularly would understand as a person who, as I take it from what you said earlier, reoriented your career to do what you like. (laughs) For, for inexplicable or often inexplicable reasons, we are interested in different things. I mean, some people are fanatical sports fans. I, I'm not. But uh, on the other hand, sports fans are much more numerous than people who care about World War II battleships. But whatever interests you, when you come across, as a surprise, something in a field that interests you and, and is something that you you would know, just like to have in your house, it's a very pleasant feeling. That goes back to what you asked me about Roosevelt's flag. It's not that I want to brag about it. It's not that I think, uh, you know, that I stand there and think I get inspiration from him by looking at his flag. That doesn't happen. It's just I was interested in him as a man, and and it's history. I mean, that flag was sitting there when, you know, Mr. Churchill came to see him in that room at the end of 1941 and, and, you know, at all other famous times in in his administration's.
0: What's the best book you've ever read on Napoleon? Uh, I would say the
1: most readable, engaging, and if you'll pardon the slang, downable was A.G. McDonald's Napoleon and his Marshals. And and one of the things that I have that I'm particularly pleased to have is um, I wrote a piece in the Daily Telegraph when I was the chairman of it in response to the book's editor's question, to name a. Book that I'd much enjoyed uh, as a younger person. I cited that, and, uh, and I got a letter from A. G. McDonald's niece. And I had quite nice correspondence with her, and I had no idea that he had any family or that, or any you know that they would be around anyway. And um, so, uh, so I would write that. But the best book in terms of the greatest work of scholarship, I would say, is David Chandler's *The Campaigns of Napoleon*. It is a mighty work of scholarship and very readable but it's a big book i mean you you have to be truly interested in napoleon as a military commander because it has mm-hmm. detailed maps of every battle and clear explanations of exactly what happened uh, but it's 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 a splendid book as as a biography i would i would say my friend andrew roberts napoleon the great just published several years ago it's a very a splendid book
0: what have you done with your battleship book collection uh, or any of your collections have you done up bibliographies no
1: but uh, they're all the, those books the battleship ones are all in one place they're all in a clearly comprehensible order and they are where the where the models of the ships are indeed the <clears throat> the, the models of the ships are in the top shelves and the books are beneath them uh, and in a, in one case there, there's actually an aircraft carrier, in a shelf in the middle of where the books are, but it's perfectly well-organized. Anyone, even someone who didn't know anything about the subject, couldn't find their way around it very easily. Uh, I mean, all the Japanese ships are together and the Americans
0: are together and so on. Okay. So you haven't felt this desire to produce a a nice book about specific collections, like a book that talks about your interest in the subject that lays out your conclusions and gives a checklist you haven't had a desire to do that
1: no but that may i may yet do it you know when i'm older and thinking of posterity i I may do it yeah Yeah. i can i can understand the appeal of it right but i'm still pretty active in my real careers you know so i i I just haven't uh, i mean that takes a lot of time nigel as you know and I, i just don't have
0: that time right now but how how important on a percentage basis is collecting to your life, as opposed to making business deals?
1: Well, no, I mean the collecting wouldn't be more than ten percent or twenty percent at the most. I would say, I, right. I mean, I have a I have a commercial career and I have a writing career as a commentator and I have a career as a historian. and would rank after those, so it's complementary to that. So I, so cutting a precise percentage is a bit difficult because it's useful in all of those things even in commerce it's useful sometimes
0: yeah well a lot of people collect in their whatever business they're in it's just uh it's a great way to learn about the field and the history of it no absolutely did you do that in newspapers did you acquire a bunch i did of books, and right? i have
1: in this room i have biographies of uh, many of the famous newspaper proprietors uh, in the in the greatest days of that occupation I was fortunate to hit the tail end of that personally, but uh, uh, yes. the uh, all the worthwhile lives of William Randolph Hearst, Lord Beaverbrook, Lord Northcliffe, Colonel McCormick, uh, the Salzberger family that owned the New York Times,
0: uh, and, and others. Okay, Lord Thompson. There is a bit of a Canadian tradition, isn't there?
1: Yeah, yeah, there is.
0: Finally, what any big lessons that you've learned? by having these books in your life? Uh,
1: yes, I, I think I can say this. It's a bit of a stretch, but uh, we all have our ups and downs and moments of discouragement. And I have found that tremendously helpful at such times is a knowledge of, or at least the accessibility to gain a knowledge of the ups and downs and the careers of others. Often famous people. And in such times as those, it has been extremely helpful to me to read of the most difficult periods that some famous people, lots of famous people, have gone through. So that access, even if you can't sleep at night and get up at three o'clock in the morning and come downstairs and turn the lights on and take yeah. out a book about the worst times of Lincoln and the Civil War, or, you know, Mr. Churchill in, in the wilderness, as it was called, or General de Gaulle sitting out at his, in his village waiting for the Fourth Republic to flounder to an end, or, 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 you know, when the mission of Dakar failed in 1940 and he allegedly contemplated suicide. I mean, people do go through difficult times, and in general, they do survive. But it's it's very useful to, to have some scholarly authenticated demonstration of how other people have gone through such things and they do get through them and sometimes moments like that come upon us at very inconvenient times and it's it's extremely handy to have books about it around in your own house that as i say you can consult even at three o'clock in the morning if that's what you want yeah i have some books on i was a candidate psychoanalyst briefly as a young man and and i have some books from that era and occasionally I take some of them out on specific points. So I, I haven't had anything like this for a long time, but uh, where you read about certain cases and, and, and you know, to see how you navigate through them. So it, 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 there's no question, Nigel, it is helpful and helpful in unsuspected and unpredictable ways to have authoritative information around you and accessible at all times. Not just when somebody happens to be in their office, or you know, when when you're dependent upon the hours of someone else, but at any time.
0: Yeah, that's that's kind of an antiseptic. I mean, it's I totally agree, but it's also what you've just said is that books uh, give you hope. They're like friends. Would you say that's stretching it? I zero?
1: would. I would say that. Yes, I would say that. Particularly if you've had the book a long time. Now, I, the books I had when I was a child, I still have. I, I don't mean when I was, you know, Jack and Jill went up the hill, but I mean, books that you uh. actually read, you know, I mean real books. It, I, you know, for example, I have the book about the great ocean liner, the original Queen Elizabeth, that I bought on the Queen Elizabeth when my parents took my brother and me on the Queen Elizabeth in 1953. I still have the book, you see? Yeah. And so it is like an old friend.
0: That's the physical object, but I guess I'm getting more at the fact that you've got access to hope. You've got access to examples of uh, how to live, how to cope. That's what you were saying. Yes. Yeah. Well, that, that's pretty damn important, isn't it? Uh, well, I I believe it is certainly been useful to me. Would you say that's why you collected Napoleon?
1: No, because I collected him just because he was such a figure. fantastic character. He he is a uh, like um, Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. He was like one of the great swashbuckling figures of history, and it was just astonishing what he what he what he did. You know, a person from Corsica, albeit it was a prominent family in Corsica. But I mean, here is a person who, uh, for a time, he was really ultimately governing practically all of Europe, even, even though it came down in the end. He remains an indelible figure as someone who, who, to some degree, inspired the world by the extent of his achievement and the proportions of his genius. He was, he was without question a, a really an inspiring figure in many ways. But, but uh, I, I'm not saying he's altogether admirable, but, uh, but, but he, he, what he did was it reminds us all of what can be done by a single individual.
0: Yeah, I mean, he talk about ups and downs and, and comebacks. It's just extraordinary, isn't and, it? And
1: the, he made the greatest, Mr. Nixon was like this in a way, the, the, the greatest comeback he made was at the end when he couldn't actually come back to office, but he came back into people's minds. So the, the, to the point where the French elected his slightly preposterous nephew yes. uh, as first the president and then the emperor. And uh, you know, Mr. Nixon, I, I feel made his greatest comeback of all. He made a number of them during his career, as you know, but he made his greatest comeback of all after all of that. And to this day, we found when I published my book about him that there's more interest in him in the American public than any other president except Lincoln. And it, I believe it is because there's this gnawing feeling amongst a great many Americans. That he, he was given a raw deal, that he did not deserve to be driven out of office the way he was and reviled as he was. And you, you may remember while he was alive, after a few years after he'd left the White House, you'd frequently hear people saying, well, if only he'd apologize or something. But, but he made it clear. He said it the night before he retired, and he stuck to it the rest of his life, that he did nothing legally wrong. He made bad mistakes, but he did nothing illegal. And that, despite widespread sentiment to the country, is, I believe, the truth. There's no evidence that he committed any offense. Some of his people did, but there's no probate of evidence that he did.
0: Well, he's a flawed character, and uh, that's fascinating.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, but we all are to a degree. He was also a damn
0: good president. Yeah, this is off topic, but didn't he almost bring in a kind of a minimum... Base wage,
1: yeah, he did, and he he, he called for welfare reform. Uh, it took until uh, until uh, really to Reagan to get it done. And and he, you look, he founded the Environmental Protection Agency, abolished the draft, uh, yeah. he ended school desegregation. Uh, I mean, he was the one who set up these private sector commissions with official roles that that desegregated the schools and spared. The school systems of America, the lunacy that the courts had ordered of bussing tens of millions of school children all around metropolitan areas away from where they lived to get racial balance in the schools. He spared the country that, uh, as well as the more well-known things like opening up relations with China and signing the greatest arms control agreement in history. And, And he did, after all, come into office. Uh, with 550,000 American draftees uh, at the ends of the earth with no exit strategy, 200 to 400 of them coming home in body bags every week, and he got them completely out there while preserving a non-communist government in Saigon. I mean, it was astounding what he achieved. It was one of the most successful single terms in the history of the country. Uh, I'd say uh, more successful than any except Lincoln's and FDR's uh, third term. Uh, maybe his first term as well. Uh, and that's why he was reelected by 18 million votes, a, a plurality that has still not been equaled, despite the fact that the elector is almost twice as big now.
0: Is there anything you haven't said that you want to say about your love of books and how important they are to you? I, I want
1: to emphasize a point that you raised, and I should have thought of it myself. They are many of them like like old friends. I have a tailor in England who who refers to an overcoat as a friend, and I and I know what he means. But he's a tailor. But it, it, it does apply, it does apply to books and because whether the book would be of any interest to someone else, a lot of them have a history with you. You know, you remember when you took it on a certain trip. It puts you in mind of something forty years ago or whatever it was. You say, and 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 if you've got a lot of these books. It, it's 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 really is like you know sitting amongst your friends I mean I, I can identify with and I can't remember who it was or even where I saw this but somebody uh, some television program I was watching I, I, with, with um, one of these well-known British commentators who said that what he really liked to do was in the evening put on some classical music and just sit in his library and go around and pick out a book and sit down and read in it and then do another one and just move around like that. And he said he, he, he found this such a uh, satisfying experience that eventually he actually dressed up in a dinner jacket as if he was going to a formal dinner to to, and to have a glass of brandy or something with his books. Now <laughs> yeah. that's a bit eccentric and I don't take it that far, but I, I, I understand that and identify with yeah. it. He's showing respect. Yeah, exactly. That's it. And we do treat our books with respect, you know, otherwise they, they you know, they, they get bashed around and fall apart eventually.
0: Just let's wind down with uh, what are you working on now again, please? I'm
1: working on a history of the Western world that begins in the earliest times we can get at and and I, I deal with the old testament although you know it, it has to be handled with caution as history most of it and uh, but it, it it ends with the death of the emperor augustus in 14 a.d and it is it's essentially a political history and the extent to which government evolved in that time and and government had reached a relatively sophisticated level by the time of augustus who he was the co-ruler or ruler of the Roman world for 58 years, which was an astonishing achievement.
0: Mm. Well, we'll look forward to that.
1: Yeah, good.
0: <laughs> okay, well. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to to talk about books in your life. It's a real pleasure to have talked to you.
1: Thank, thanks so much, Nigel. I, I I hope our paths cross again.
0: Me too, bye for yeah.
1: now. Yeah, bye.